Good morning. I've got so much ground to cover this morning. I've given you a, a, a lesson that includes, I think, 11 pages when it got all printed out. Way more than I'll be able to cover in the class, so I'll just say up front, if I get halfway through it, we're going to celebrate. If I get all the way through it, we're not going to believe it. But you take that lesson, please. I don't know what you do with marks regularly, but please take that lesson and, uh, you know, maybe you need uh, something other than an Ambien one night this week, but uh, <laughs> no, read it sometime, please, and consider it is an overview. It's intended to let you see the whole horizon. And so, yeah, it's going to cover, it could be 25, it could be 100 pages long uh, on this subject, Paul and the Law. But uh, most of you know, in fact, I'd say all of you know, and if you're a first-time visitor, you, you're learning this morning that Mark is a lawyer. He's a great lawyer. He's not just a lawyer. He's a great lawyer, and every client uh, that gets to call him their lawyer really is extremely blessed. Um, five years ago, Mark founded a, a, an organization. Let's see if I can get going here. Uh, called, the logo is there, CTLA, Christian Trial Lawyers Association. And he invited me to serve as executive director. What, a, what an incredible privilege and blessing that's been. What a good ride. I've learned an incredible amount about the uh, legal profession. We now have about 700 members, nearly 700 members in 35 states and two foreign countries. We could easily have uh, many more in, in, in other foreign countries as well. But um, in the process of serving as executive director, though my history and my previous work was in full-time ministry with churches and campus ministry. It was in campus ministry at Texas Tech, so I'm a, I'm a bona fide uh, certified Red Raider. That's my main qualification for standing up here this morning. Um, it was in campus ministry. I got to know Mark, and uh, then this connection that opened the, this opportunity for what I'm doing. Christian Trial Lawyers Association, incredible uh, opportunity. I appreciate the chance to give you a uh, uh, cheap plug. If you'll come to me after class today, if you've got a cousin or an aunt or an uncle, brother, sister, whoever that works in the legal profession, whether they're paralegal or whether they're a legal assistant or whether they're a lawyer or a judge, whatever, uh, get a card from me and tell them about it and send them to the website and so forth. We'd love to recruit them. Mark won't mind my taking time for that plug. <clears throat> the people who are in that organization and those who are not, who are Christian, who are committed Christians, in the legal profession, are swimming upstream. That's what you see here. <laughs> uh, it, it's not easy. It, it's a tremendous challenge. In, in your profession, which may not have a thing to do with the legal profession, you know, as a committed Christian, how difficult it is. And the more I work with these lawyers and their clients in a variety of ways uh, every day, I appreciate and admire them. And I'll tell you what, what you're doing this morning, if you took the whole class to do it and said to Mark, thank you, it wouldn't be enough. Uh, Steve estimated what? You said 15, 10 or 15 hours a week. I'd double that. I know what Mark does with this thing, and it's way into the late night, and it's way in the early morning. And those books that he reads, uh, sometimes more than three or four, uh, take a good bit of time as well. So I'm telling you, uh, what he does for this class, his devotion is obvious to you, but it's even more obvious to me and others who are kind of on the inside and, 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 and behind and, and spurring him on. What I've learned in the process about the, in the short time about the legal profession is that it is complex. The law itself 
and the, the legal practice, uh, the practice of law, is, is complex. And that's a good word to describe our topic today, Paul and the law. Uh, it, it, there's nobody that's got it all figured out on this subject, Paul and the law, not even Mark. But he can come back next week, as I said in the class lesson, and, and make me the defendant and tell me what uh, would, would need to be changed. And uh, he may do exactly that. Um, it is complex. You recognize the, the, the DNA here. It's complex because of what seem to be mixed messages from Paul. He can say that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law in 1 Corinthians he can write to the Galatians, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. He can write again to the Galatians, uh, we're held prisoners by the law and that law brings wrath. He writes to the Romans. All of these are, are very negative points. You know, but then he'll turn right around and in Romans 7 he'll say the law is holy. The law, the commandment is, is, is righteous. I want you to see this. These are the quotes I was just sharing with you. You see the top above the line, those are all negative. Down below, and we could add still more, very positive. The law is holy, the law is righteous, the law is good. And he says that uh, in, in several places. So which is it? Does Paul like the law or not? Is it good or bad? Um, what do you think? It, you know, is it both? Is Paul consistent? Does he contradict himself? Uh, it's, it's complicated and it's further complicated by the fact that you have Paul saying using the word nomos law he uses it in a variety of ways not just referring as we will see in a moment to his primary target but he calls he talks about the law of Christ the law of faith the law of the spirit of life the law of my mind he talks about the law of sin and death uh, the law that someone became to themselves talking about the Gentiles and so forth Back up. We're going to set you up for this one. Um, this morning, when you came uh, to church, uh, if someone had asked you, what do you think of when you hear the law? What does, that, what does that mean to you, the law? Maybe a variety of things, but for some of you, you would have thought of law enforcement, the policeman, the constable, the deputy, the sheriff, the on and on, the FBI even. And uh, some of you slowly rolled through those stop signs in your neighborhood because nobody was around, right, on Sunday morning early. And some of you uh, were in a hurry because the last minute, like me sometimes, and you're, you're thinking, ah, oh, I can stretch that green light through the yellow, and as you pass under the yellow, you notice the red, and then you see other lights flashing behind you. <laughs> other lights, including blue and white and whatever else. If you look real closely, you'll see Paul in this uniform, do you reckon, thanks to Steve and his excellent PowerPoint work. Um, <clears throat> Paul was never a policeman on a motorcycle, that's for sure. But he was, he was trained in the law, and he knew how to enforce it. Now, if you got stopped this morning on the way to church, I just hope none of the other church members on their way passed by and smiled. That's especially no fun. I've had it happen twice in my life. And that's when I was preaching full-time, and the, the parishioners really loved it. <laughs> they weren't too bad. But anyway, uh, when that happens, uh, you might have... You might have thought of that song, or you might have thought of... Uh, 
Clint Eastwood, the law, if the law is watching, if the law is present, if the law is there, then what you do that's unlawful is going to be pointed out. That's the key point. It's going to be pointed out. And one of Paul's phrases, you're going to see what sin is and you're going to know that it's utterly sin. When the law is present, when the law is watching, you better stop doing what is unlawful. When you think of law, you may think of more than just the, uh, hopefully you do, you think of more than the, the policemen, the officers. You may think of uh, a variety of laws from uh, home association rules to uh, speed limits to, to uh, whatever law should be applied to Bernie Madoff. Uh, the teens think of their curfew the younger children think about where you bound where you put boundaries on where they can use finger paint and crayons and so forth the law has a lot of references for Paul it has primarily one we're going to ask the question nomos the Greek word for law is used 121 times in six of Paul's 13 letters actually it's only in six it is in six of the 13 are ascribed to him by conservatives but um Uh, He focuses those in on actually just a few chapters. What is the law is a question we want to ask. You look here at a law library. What is the law in Paul's mind when he uses nomos? He has one primary thing in mind. In most of the verses, he's thinking of what is obvious, the law of Moses. And that is concentrated in the first five books of the Old Testament, often called the Pentateuch, maybe more often called the Torah. Okay, and you see... uh, you see, if you look real close here, uh, uh, Charlton Heston up there with the... Uh, why do they always play Ten Commandments at Easter time? I haven't figured that out. But uh, anyway, you, you see the giving of the law on the stone initially. Uh, you know, the Torah eventually became on those scrolls that were hard to find. They were hard to use, but that's what Paul was dealing with. He wasn't dealing with computers and certainly not... Uh, pages of a book like we take for granted what is the law well it might be a reference to the five books of the old testament the first five the torah the pentateuch or it might be inclusive of all the old testament that is the law and the prophets and the the uh, writings in between the prophets and the torah you won't know except for the context but uh, you do have to look closely and you'll and you'll in many cases try to figure it out uh, what makes it even more challenging is that sometimes the uh, sometimes he won't be talking about the law of Moses. In fact, several times he won't be. He will talk about, use the word nomos for law in general. The law in general, a, a law in general. There are, I counted ten times, uh, and you could, you could argue with me on several of those, whether or not that's a general law, whether it's the law of Moses or, or, or principle. Uh, but I've listed them here in your lesson on page 3. Uh, I, I, rec- I, I counted 13 where, uh, where Paul changes things up with a phrase or two, like the, the few that we listed before, the law of faith, the law of Christ, the law of sin, the law of, of my mind, and so forth. But of the, tw- the, of the 121 uses that Paul makes that I counted personally, and you might find more, You won't find that many in the English translations in most cases. But of those, 106, notice that, only 15 are not in Romans and Galatians. These are the two primary 
letters in which Paul concentrates his teaching on the law and what he has to say about the law. 106 of 121 are in Galatians and Romans. Actually, they're focused in on three chapters. The primary chapters are Romans 7 with the most 22 reference or uses, Romans 2 with 19, Galatians 3 has 15. By the way, you, you need to expand also, uh, we haven't done much with this in this lesson, but you could easily and should eventually expand from just the word of nomos to other ways in which Paul refers to the Old Testament, the, the Torah, the law, and that would be include uh, 2 Corinthians 3, for example. He talks about it, the Old Covenant. He talks about the written code, the letter, and so forth. So let me just suggest that's enough of counting words. Paul says to the Galatians that if you're trying to observe the law and be justified by observing the law, then you are what? You are alienated from Christ. Further, he says you have fallen from grace. That's Galatians 5, verse 4. He says, in effect, several times, he does it in Galatians 5 and also Galatians 6, he says, you're arguing about, we're going to talk about that in a minute, circumcision. Circumcision or uncircumcision, he says, doesn't count. What counts is, underline this, what counts is, it's up there on the screen, faith expressing itself through love. Get that. Faith expressing itself through love. That's what really counts, Paul says. It's not the requirement of the law and whether you're keeping that. It's faith expressing itself in love. And then uh, in chapter 6, he says it's not circumcision or uncircumcision that counts. It is what a new creation. It is the fact that we are. What counts is a new creation. And he'll discuss that elsewhere as well. What about the background for all of this? Paul, when he had the experience on the Damascus Road, recorded in Acts chapter 9 initially, and then Paul reviews it again several times, Acts 22, Acts 26. He reflects on it several times in his writings. What happened on that road to Damascus? You know the story. Paul stopped. He was pursued by God. He was on his way to persecute Christians. He was a zealous Pharisee. He was devoted to the law. He was stopped. He was blinded. He had three days of prayer and fasting, and Ananias came to him, and in that whole experience, there was a vast, incredible change that took place in Paul. Formerly, he saw the law as the sunum bonum, the greatest good. He saw it as the thing that, that the one guide for life. He saw it as the, the thing that uh, would help you know and please God more than anything else. But when he realized that Jesus whom he had persecuted by persecuting his followers, that Jesus was the Messiah prophesied in that law, then everything changed. Vast perspective change. And it's especially obvious and pointed out in uh, Philippians chapter 3. When he is pretending to, and, and he, he, you know, he's almost apologetic in doing this, competing with his opponents in, uh, in uh, Philippi, he starts listing his reasons for boasting in the flesh. He says, I, you know, this is crazy. Nobody should be boasting in the flesh. But if I had to compete with these guys who are changing my message and requiring you to keep the law, even though you're out from under the law now, he said, here's what I would list. And he lists eight things. Here's two of them. He says, in regard to the law of Pharisee, that's a feather in his cap. That's an elite few. That's the specially devoted ones, the loyalists. The, the, the 
very meticulous keepers of the law. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. I want you to make a mental note of that. Another translation says blameless. I kept it perfectly, Paul says. Now I would just add, this is just my own little parenthesis here, legalistic righteousness. That may not include matters of the heart, like covetousness. Who's going to know whether deep in your heart you are coveting, which would break the Tenth Commandment? Unless you act on that covetousness and take the property of your neighbor, perhaps his wife, etc. Okay? So, so that's just a thought about Paul's claim for perfect obedience to the law when he's competing with his opponents in Philippi. Um, he says, after he lists these eight things, he says, all that I could list, and there were more things he could have listed, all of that I consider as rubbish. And he actually uses a word here that is more like dung or manure in a complete, complete uh, trashing, so to speak, of all of that. He says it's worthless by comparison to knowing Christ, to gaining Christ. And if you kept reading in verse 9, Philippians 3, 9, you'd, you'd find him saying, I want to know Christ. I want to gain Christ. I don't want the righteousness that I can get from law. I want the right that is my own. That's, that's the way he phrases it. Righteousness of my own that comes from the law. He says instead, I want the righteousness that comes from God, the author of the law, the one who thought of the law, the one who now uses the law for a purpose that we're going to get to in just a second. I want the righteousness that comes from God by faith in Jesus Christ. I want to know Jesus. Everything I had, everything I've devoted myself to, everything that's been important to me before the road to Damascus and the conversion experience, all of that is trash by comparison to gaining Christ. That's extremely important for understanding Paul and the law. One of Paul's earliest writings is Galatians. And Galatians is one of those two letters that have the focus of the writings about the law in it. Now, let me give you a background for Galatians very quickly. Most of you know this. You've been in Mark's class, so you should know that Galatians is written in a very controversial situation. Paul is correcting false teaching. There, is, there are those who came into Paul's, uh, the church where Paul established, the, the, the people that were spread through the area of Galatia, and began to change the gospel. Paul says they perverted the gospel. They changed what I preached to you. Now, instead of putting your faith in Jesus, they're having you keep the law. Gentiles who became Christians must, have, must be circumcised. That's what they required. And Paul says, no. He is so intense about it. He's just as aggressive as he was in persecuting Christians. Now, in going after the heretics, the false teachers in Galatia, he says twice in chapter 1, let them be anathema. Twice he calls for eternal condemnation of those who would, instead of knowing that Jesus is enough and faith in Jesus is enough, who would insist on circumcision to the law of Moses, twice, Paul says, when they do that, when they change the message, they deserve eternal condemnation. It's very intense. You won't find a preacher more intense than Paul was in all of Galatians. Uh, but even with that intensity, 
in that background, Paul uh, makes some very positive points. Uh, one is, he, as he confronts this false teaching, uh, he, he tells about our autobiographical information that, that Luke doesn't put in the book of Acts. One of the stories that he tells about is when he confronted Peter. Peter was acting out of hypocrisy for a while. He ate with the Gentile Christians in Antioch. And then when the Jewish Christians who were leaders in the church came to Antioch, he stopped. He was afraid of what those Jewish Christians might think or do. So he stopped. He misled Barnabas in that process. He misled several others in that process. And Paul, when he noticed it, said, hold everything. And to Peter's face, he said, how is it that you can force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Why are you doing that, Peter? That's hypocrisy. We who are born as Jews, who are Jews by birth, we know that we aren't justified by observing the law. We know that we are justified by faith in Christ Jesus. A man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. You'll find this at the end of Galatians chapter 2. In Galatians chapter 3, though, is the chapter that has the word uh, nomos so much. And uh, I wish I could just tell you everything that's in there, but I'm going to focus on one particular part, he, he, or, or two parts, rather. The first part of the chapter talks about the curse, the curse of the law. Everyone who doesn't keep everything in the law, the Jew who doesn't keep every jot and tittle, he gets a curse. That curse is exactly what Jesus became. What, that curse is exactly what Jesus bore for us when he went to the cross. He became the curse. He bore the, cro- the, the, the curse on the cross. But then the most positive thing that, that Paul says about this law that brings the curse is, um, comes in the end of chapter 3. Toward the end uh, in in chapter 3, he says, So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Here's a picture. It's a fascinating picture if you go behind the scenes into the Greek letters, or the Greek words, rather. You'll find a picture of a tutor. It's a person who's trained to get that child ready and prepare that child and lead that child to school so they can learn even more. That's the picture Paul has here. It's a very positive role that the law serves. Note it. The law is good. Yes. Why? Because it points out sin. It makes you know true guilt and utter sin. But because of that, it leads you where? It leads you to Christ. So if you look closely on the trail guide up here, you'll see nomos. What did you put on it, Steve? Nomos special edition. Greek word for law. You see the compass? That's the role that the law has. It's our guide. It leads us to Jesus Christ. When you come to Romans, Romans has got 16 chapters. Galatians has only got six. There's a lot more space. The pressure's off. Paul is not so intense. He's not going after those false teachers. He's dealing with a problem in the early church, by the way. The biggest problem in the early church, one of them, was trying to get Jews who become Christians to get along with Gentiles who become Christians so that they could be a part of the same church and love each other and have harmony and admiration, appreciation, respect. That wouldn't be a problem today in any church, would it? Well, our distinction wouldn't be between Jew and Gentile, but it might be between, you know, 25 other divisions that come. We still have the same challenge. 
We still have pride getting in our way, and we have ethnicity issues. We have all kinds of challenges because of which we need the same basic message that says, whatever it is, Paul says, whatever it is that would keep you from loving your brother is wrong. The Jews who had become Christians were quite proud of themselves. And they thought, hey, look, look, look at my ancestry. Look at uh, what I've got to, to kind of lean back on. You know, all the Old Testament is mine. The law and, and, and all of that. Look at my advantages. Paul talks about those in Romans. But the main issue is the Jews had been kicked out of Rome, and so the Gentiles stepped into the leadership of that church. Now the Jews are being allowed to come back, and so the, the question is, what do we do? How do we get along again if we ever did? And Paul is writing this letter not only to say, hey, I'm coming to visit you and I hope you'll give me some money and you'll spur me on to, to, to visit Spain, but also I want to help you in getting along with each other. The two races, the Jews, the Gentiles. And by the way, a Gentile, if you don't know, is anybody who's not a Jew. That's a big bucket. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. But all of us need to get along because all of us need what? All of us need a Savior. Every last one of us needs a Savior. Now, there's a lot of controversy about what Paul says about the law in Romans. I've written a little bit about it on pages uh, 5 and 6, and I'm not going to have time to go into those. But there's quite a controversy about uh, what uh, E.P. Sanders uh, tried to do in his writings of 1977, and then all those who jumped on his bandwagon, and there were many who did, and then others who... Have, have tried to make sense of it. Uh, N.T. Wright, I quote here, and I refer to him as one that makes the most sense to me right now uh, and, and really does open some, some uh, wonderful windows of uh, fresh air on the interpretation of Paul and the law. But instead of going through those details of the controversy and the arguments, I want to just take a look at Romans, okay? Let's take a quick look at Romans. In Romans chapters 1 and 2, Paul establishes that both Jews and Gentiles have a gigantic sin problem. He starts with the Gentiles. They're lost in sin. He makes very clear what those sins are. You can read about them, and you may not like them because they're very distasteful. They're repulsive. But then he comes to the Jews, and he says, Hey, you guys don't have a leg to stand on either. Chapter 2 is very pointedly in rebuking, in, in rebuking the Jews who were proud of their law. They were proud of lots of things about their legacy and the ancestry, but they weren't keeping the law. He says, in effect, there are some of the Gentiles who are keeping the law better than you, and they don't even have the law. They don't even know the law, but look, by their very conscience and by their very uh, uh, just natural, innate understanding, they're doing what you're not doing. So you can't condemn them. Chapter 2 is a very clear call for obedience beyond hearing. You may miss that if you just kind of read through Romans 2. It's directed to the Jews very clearly. But the point is, hey, don't just tell me what you heard. Don't just come to Bible class on Sunday morning and read the lesson while the teacher's up there. Make something happen on Monday. Make a change on Tuesday. When you're in the office on Wednesday, it's the words that come out of your mouth. It's the way you treat people that makes a difference, okay? But the point of chapters 1 and 2 is that Jew and Gentile alike need a Savior. At the end of chapter 3, he especially makes uh, powerful points when he says, 
Uh, Romans 3.20, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his own or in God's sight by observing the law. No one will be declared righteous by observing the law by God. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. Later he says, But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there's no difference, for all have sinned. No difference. All have sinned. Jew and Gentile alike. That's the point. Then we come to Romans 7. Paul begins Romans 7 with a, a, a nice illustration or analogy. Okay? Don't take this thing too far. By the way, even in Jesus' teachings in the Gospels, his parables, his illustrations, they have a key point. Don't, don't go way out from there and, and add 14 other things to it. One main thing here. Paul says, when a man and a woman are married, the wife is bound to the husband as long as he's alive. Okay? They're on top of the wedding cake here. But if the man dies... He's not with her. She is released from that law of marriage, or literally it is that husband law. She is released from that, and uh, she's no longer bound. Then he says, just like the Jew, or just like the, just like the wife who was bound to her husband as long as he lived, so the Jew is bound to the law as long as he lives. The Jew. But when the Jew dies, when that Jewish, when that Jewish man becomes a Christian, and by uniting with Christ in his death, that's Romans 6, about verse 5, when we are united with Christ in his death, then we die. We die to the law. We die to the law through what? Through the body of Christ. There's quite a discussion about this, but the thing we need to know is uh, Paul is saying, okay, husband, wife, husband dies, wife is free. Um, and by the way, that's the only place in Scripture where that's developed very well. And then, then he follows from that and says, okay, Jewish, Jewish man or woman, bound to the law. When that person, not the law, but when that person dies to the law, by uniting with Christ in his death because of the law, then he's free. She's free. No longer under law, but now under what? Under grace. That's the phrase that Paul likes in contrast to under law. But here, then, then we come to the key passage in Romans 7. By the way, we could talk about this for 14 days. Romans 7, verses 7 and following is one of the most difficult passages in all of Paul's writings. So we're just going to very quickly touch the, the surface. Paul is describing a tug-of-war. Actually, it's a civil war <laughs> it, that goes on inside any person. He writes it in first person, so it sounds like Paul's describing his own struggle, and part of it may very well be. There's, there's an incredible discussion in Pauline studies about whether Paul is writing about himself here or he's writing about every man. And I've given some quotes on that in the, in, the, in the text of the lesson. I'm not sure, honestly. For years, I thought he was talking about himself. And the more I studied this thing over the last couple of weeks, when Paul gave me the, I mean, Mark gave me this assignment, the more I'm thinking, Paul certainly is not restricting this to himself. Are you with me there? He may be talking about himself, but it's not strictly himself. 
He's using I in the same way as he did in 1 Corinthians 13, I believe, when he said, though I speak in the, in the tongues of men and of angels. He's not talking about just himself there. He's talking about every man. Largely, uh, as a whole, this, this whole section can be divided into two parts. Both of them are first person. Uh, the first part is in pre- past tense. The second part is in present tense. Um, when you get to especially the second part, it seems so personal. I mean, it comes so close to home for every one of us who is reading it with a sensitive conscience. I mean, if you, if you haven't read Romans 7 lately, please go home and do that. If you don't do anything else, but don't stop at the end of 7. Keep reading into 8. Keep reading into 8 because you're going to find some incredible uh, help and insight there. When you're looking at chapter 7 uh, and you come to verse 23, Paul says, I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind. Another law. In the verse preceding, he talks about God's law. There's God's law. There's another law. There's the law of sin. And, and uh, I mean, the law of my mind. And then there's the law of sin. Paul, Paul is just so vulnerable here, I believe. But he's also describing what each of us is when we are fully understanding this struggle. Here it is. Classic divided mind. You've been there, if you're sensitive at all, to the spiritual struggle we all try to, to, to do, to walk. I know what is good. I decide to do what is good. I want to do what is good. I am devoted to doing the what is good. But then I turn around and I find what? I find myself drawn to what is bad. I, I, I have uh, my passions aroused by the law that says don't do this. I'm drawn to what is bad. I find myself unable to stop doing what is bad. I am addicted to the opposite of what I decide I want to do. That's the struggle. That's the tug of war. What is the solution? Paul describes it in great detail, and then he gives the solution. (laughs) The solution is who, he cries out. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And the answer is, Verse 25, and it thanks be to God. There's, there's hardly a breath between those verses. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me? And then the exclamation, the jubilant exclamation and the expression of gratitude, thanks be to God because he will rescue me. He is rescuing me uh, through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Wish I had time to develop that more, but I want to go quickly into chapter 8. We've got to wrap it up here. When you come to chapter 8, Paul simply builds on that, that jubilant exclamation of gratitude that, that he is and that he has been rescued. And by the way, when you are rescued by Jesus, does that take away the struggle of sin? No. Do you still wrestle with it? Yes. Question in chapter 7, is that about the unregenerate, man before conversion or is that about the regenerate man after conversion i call it bc and ac which is it (laughs) you will find scholars wonderful intelligent bright scholars of god's word almost evenly split in the text i said most say it's not autobiographical about half and half say it's either before conversion or after conversion 
I tend to think with Leon Morris, who, by the way, has an excellent commentary in the Pillar series on Romans, I tend to think that it's about the man who is in Christ, still struggling, still knowing what is right, wanting to do what is right, but still finding himself, as it were, addicted to what is opposite, needing rescue not once, not at the one beginning of the Christian walk, but every day and sometimes every 10 minutes. Are you with me? Have you been there? Do you understand? Give me an amen. <laughs> okay, you understand. I really do believe. I'm having a crazy time with this thing coming off my ear here. Never again do I want this thing, okay? I want, I want one here. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now, chapter 8 continues quickly. Let's look at the wonderful uh, explanation Paul gives us. If you don't hear anything else, hear Romans 8, 1 through 4. Let me back it up. You have been sentenced to death. You are in prison, Paul says. You are a prisoner of the law. You are behind bars and you are on death row. You got it? It's no fun. You don't want to be there. But you are released. You are now released from that cage and that prison, that law, as it were. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life, there's the law of the Spirit of life, set us free from what? From the law of sin and death. That's the law of Moses. That's any kind of law that points out what sin is and makes us full of guilt and shame and unable to get free. We are set free by Christ Jesus. Notice how he explains it a little bit further. He says, uh, For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful flesh see the law is good but the law is weakened by the man's sinful flesh sinful nature who tries to obey that law it's not the law that is wrong yeah law brings wrath and yeah law brings death but it's not the law that is bad it is the sinful nature of man get that clear okay god didn't come up with a mistake when he gave us the law of moses God didn't didn't do an, oops, I shouldn't have done that. No, it was very good. It was very right. In fact, it is the guide that brings us and helps us be ready for what? For faith in Christ Jesus. And notice this, for what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did. God did how? By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met. Notice, the law has to be met. Who meets it? Not me, not you, not the best Orthodox Jew, not even Paul in his, quote, faultless obedience of the law. Who meets it? Jesus and Jesus alone. How? As a sin offering, he meets every law, every requirement of the, of the law, every righteous requirement of the law. And uh, then he goes on to say, In us who do not live according to our sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. If you read the rest of Romans 8, you'll find out what that means and how to do it. It's a great chapter. It's one of the most profound, one of the most powerful and beautiful chapters in all of Scripture. Let's go to points for home. I'm skipping the last two pages of the lesson, all right? I'm skipping 8 and 9, I think it is. Points for home, real quick. Number one, what is it in your life and mine that is more valuable than Jesus Christ? What is it? The world's acclaim? What is it? Money? What is it? The house you live in? Is it the car you drive? Is it the bank account that you're mourning over right now? 
Are the stocks and bonds? What's more valuable in your life than Jesus Christ? Is there anything? Paul says nothing, absolutely nothing of my Jewish pedigree. Even holds a candle to Jesus Christ. It's all stinky trash. It's dung. It's manure by comparison to knowing Christ and gaining Christ and being found in the righteousness that comes from God by faith in Jesus Christ. So that's where our value should be, right? Hey, when all the economy is falling apart, and it is, are you okay? Are you okay? Hear me, you're okay. <laughs> Hear me, you lost your whole retirement. You're okay. Your money was with Bernie. You're okay. You're okay. You're better than okay. Because your righteousness comes from God by faith in Christ Jesus. Secondly, if you're struggling with this tug of war, this civil war inside of you, if the, if the, the law, whatever that law is for you, it may not be the law of Moses, but whatever it is that's in that waging war against the members of your body, the law, fighting against the law of your mind, as Paul says in 723, if it's a making you a prisoner of the law of sin, same verse, then please, here's the point for home, please beg today for God to rescue you. He will do it through Jesus. Please hear me. You don't know what to do about that. You don't know where to go. You don't know how to do this. Talk to, talk to somebody. I, I'm here and I'll be here all as long as I need to be. Talk to somebody. My new friend Dick Gethin knows about Jesus right down here on the front row. He's a visitor. Okay, <laughs> and Dick will tell you about Jesus because Jesus has rescued him just like Jesus rescued me and Steve and others that are sitting around you. If you don't know where to turn, you don't know what to do, talk to one of us, please. And then finally, you know, once you're liberated, I mean set free, you no longer have that death sentence hanging over your head. You're not afraid of death. You're not carrying that heavy load of guilt. You are liberated. So you got one thing to do, maybe several, but one primary thing, and that is to share the good news. Paul says, I don't care whether you're a Jew, I'll become like a Jew. He said, I was a Jew. Or I don't care if you don't have the law, I'll become like one that doesn't have the law, that's not under the law. Whatever I need to do, whatever it takes, by all means, I will do what is necessary to win others to Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20 and 21. We didn't have time to cover but Paul uses the word law there, or a cognate of it, nine times in those two verses. 1 Corinthians 9, 20 and 21. We're through. Let me pray. God, we're so thankful that you brought us together, that you let us look at your word this morning. Uh, there's so much more here. But, but God, use these feeble words of mine and this lesson and uh, these visuals to get into our hearts, to free us from the prison of the law of sin. God, we keep struggling because we're dealing with the human flesh. But we beg you on a, on a minute by minute, an hour by hour, day by day basis, to keep freeing us, God. Help us to know that in Jesus Christ and by our faith in Jesus Christ, you declare us righteous. We are liberated in order to love other people and to share your good news. And we thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.